Man of Steel, Answers, Insight, Commentary, Episode 32, Tornado, Part 3, Understanding Themes. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel, like the infamous tornado scene. This episode, it's creative criticisms and intentions, and exploring themes for the film. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the Confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, meaning it's not my mission to convince you or ignore the subjectivity of taste, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, which means you may reach your own valid conclusions, especially on subjective matters like themes. But this is a show intended for open-minded fans who love Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. Okay, the last episode dedicated to this, my notes are honestly a bit of a mess, which is in keeping with one of the themes of this episode. Real life is messy. And since we're exploring themes and intent, it's going to be very subjective, debatable, open to interpretation, rambling, and all over the place. Basically, this is not going to be a purely logical episode, more like raising things for consideration to help you reach your own conclusions just as you would expect with the creative analysis of any art. Instead of science, psychology, logic, or reason, this episode relies more on inherently subjective things like film analysis, philosophy, religion, and history. You've been warned. <laughs> Okay, it's not that bad, maybe. Hopefully it all comes together at the end, where we go beyond the tornado scene. But for the tornado scene, we're going to address some of the creative choices and criticisms, because I think that helps explain the diegetic impact of this scene on Clark from ages 17 to 33. This scene is central to the movie, so asking what if too much tends to result in an entirely different film. But one of the ways to address both the diegetic impact and the creative intentions is to consider three commonly proposed alternatives. Why doesn't Jonathan live? Why doesn't Jonathan save a child instead of a dog? And why doesn't Jonathan die by a heart attack? Starting with Jonathan living, I get that some don't want Jonathan to die at all, but it's part of the hero's journey, and it's common to most Superman continuities to varying degrees. Even if it's not your preference, or even mine, it's a common and valid interpretation of the character. Not killing Jonathan results in a radically different film, where Clark explores his power and his origins much earlier, and that shifts the story to his teens and his early 20s. Well, that story's already been told through Superboy and the decade-long Smallville TV series. With 218 episodes, that period of Clark's life has been explored exhaustively. The filmmakers wanted to speak to something fresh, but still within tradition. They focused on the impact of being an extraterrestrial and Superman's first day, making his debut as an adult in his 
movies, which was consistent with their casting of Henry Cavill. Donner sidestepped Superboy by keeping Clark cooped up in a cave for 12 years, creating a physical barrier to limit his interaction with the world until he grew up. Man of Steel takes a more grounded approach by implying psychological and practical barriers to limit his debut, rather than being literally sealed off from the world. Those barriers also helped organically flesh out Clark's character and his approach to being Superman, rather than being a completely invisible metamorphosis occurring in an arctic cocoon. The balance of the film makes it clear that the focus was always intended to be Superman's first day. From Zod's ultimatum on, the film is almost entirely the eternity of Superman's first day. The emphasis on Superman meant relying on those traditions where Jonathan's death has been used to move Clark's story beyond Smallville, as one would expect with the hero's journey or monomyth. Many can understand that expectation or intention, but then they take issue with the method of Jonathan's death. We addressed most of the diegetic logistics in the last episode, but critics may then argue that there was no need to put the characters in that position to begin with. We can illustrate some of those concerns with two common alternatives, Jonathan dying saving a child or Jonathan dying by a heart attack. At first, the appeal of saving a child is apparent. Jonathan is sacrificing himself for a young innocent with their whole life ahead of them. It's a noble exchange and a heroic sacrifice. It exchanges the unsettling for an uncontroversial outcome. But it misses the point. The filmmakers wanted to focus on the debut of an adult Superman. Strictly with respect to the plot, the purpose of the scene is to move Clark beyond Smallville, yet at the same time hold him back from becoming Superman too early, to create a cave of questions and character development rather than a physical cave cut off from the world. Now consider how Jonathan as a hero frustrates that purpose. As Feora says, and as Colonel Hardy quotes back, a good death is its own reward. Dying for the sake of innocence gives Jonathan's death a separate significant purpose and glorifies it. It's why we're comfortable with Colonel Hardy's death and why the critic wants Jonathan to die that way, because it's a separate acceptable motive or purpose that comforts them and makes Jonathan's death easier to accept. However, the purpose of the scene isn't to make the audience comfortable with Jonathan's death, it's to explain Clark's discomfort with it. If Jonathan dies saving a child, he's dying a hero in everyone's eyes. Clark could rest in the knowledge that Jonathan gave his life for someone else and move on with his life. He would be at peace with something like that. He wouldn't dwell on it and it wouldn't occupy his thoughts. That would accelerate us back towards Superboy when the filmmakers intended for Clark to be decidedly unsettled until age 33. They did this by having Jonathan die in the rescue of a dog, something that few would honor or laud. Instead, it would be perceived as an unmistakable tragedy and possibly a waste. Yet for Clark, he would know that Jonathan died for him and his secret, placing the weight of his father's death squarely on his shoulders. It would be an intensely private truth that Clark couldn't talk about or share with others because it would be paramount to revealing his secret and cheapening his father's sacrifice. Clark might not even be able to talk about it freely with Martha, given his role in his father's choice. In this scene, I can't imagine the guilt that Martha must feel over what winds up occurring that she could never have fathomed, which is, in essence, Jonathan makes the ultimate sacrifice, but it's a life lesson about priorities for Clark to not expose his powers in front of everybody just to save Dad at that moment. That would be an isolating experience, but one that would push him out of Smallville and turn over the lessons of that day again and again until he could reach some sort of peace with it. And in the meantime, those questions would shape his character organically rather than 
being thrust onto us without development, like in Donner's version. This applies to many of the objections which ask for more creative clarity. For example, a critic might say, if they wanted to make it so that rescuing Jonathan meant that Clark's secret would be blown, why couldn't they contrive it to be more certain? They could shorten the time so that Clark has no choice but to use his powers, or they could throw a camera crew or some storm chasers there to ensure that the attempt would be documented and reported. Or they could even have the characters explicitly say these things aloud. However, all of that frustrates the purpose of creating the cave of questions. Unambiguous clarity for the audience means a lack of questioning and soul-searching for Clark. If the situation is that plainly clear-cut, if he's excused by the circumstances and there's nothing to resolve, consider, or question, well then Clark simply moves on without learning anything. The death was not tragedy for tragedy's sake, but it is intended as a moment of continual character development. As Alexander McLaren said, sorrow is prolonged for the same reason as it was sent. It is of little use to send it for a little while. So what would Clark learn from this? Well, that leads us into the final commonly proposed alternative, the heart attack. It's natural to want to defer to earlier versions, and there's a lot to recommend the heart attack. It's elegant and it's unambiguous. Putting aside the fact that Superman is able to undo death by the end of the film, the heart attack is meant to teach Clark the fragility of human life, how nature is arbitrary, the limitations of his own powers, the pangs of heartbreak, and to move on to adulthood with the death of the father as per the hero's journey. However, I'd argue that the tornado scene teaches all of those lessons and more in Man of Steel to greater effect and with more meaning and more character impact. The lessons of mortality apply across both scenes. In either case, Clark's father dies, so he feels the heartbreak, he grows up and leaves Smallville, and Jonathan is taken by nature while Clark feels powerless. However, for the tornado scene, the lesson are more nuanced. Clark's role in Jonathan's death makes the heartbreak deeper. Clark's departure is of his own volition and human motives, rather than being compelled by an alien glowing green sunstone. Jonathan being taken by a violent and unexpected force of nature too soon, rather than a cause that is common to old age and a full life. Finally, we've all felt powerless at one point or another. It's a sympathetic sensation, but how often are our choices bound by sheer impossibility? Put another way, how often are your choices limited by the laws of physics? In Superman the movie, Pa's death humbles someone who's able to do incredible things. But only the physics of the situation binds Clark. It's meant as a binary impossibility, a pure limitation on his power. There's no aspect of mind, will, or emotions in the situation. Whatever Clark wanted or felt, if he had tried to save Pa, nobody would have stopped him or told him he was wrong. And in that sense, the death is one-dimensional. It ends up being a highly specific lesson about the limits of Superman's powers that's not very applicable to the audience. Kids, the moral of the story is that you have to live with death, unless you're Superman and choose not to. In fact, at the end of the film, Superman reverses death and is essentially accountable to no one for it. In Man of Steel, Clark is bound by challenges that are much more identifiable, relatable, and applicable. In our last episode, we offered diegetic difficulties with the rescue, which border on impossibility, but it's still 
still ambiguous and uncertain. It isn't clear-cut that Clark couldn't have saved Jonathan if completely divorced from his knowledge at the time or lack thereof, his upbringing, his mind, his will, and his emotions, the expectations of his father and his relationship to him, and the reaction and the responses and the fears of the witnesses observing. In other words, even if Clark was a completely emotionless and mindless robot programmed to save Jonathan with his powers, the situation is still somewhat unclear. But Man of Steel is careful to show that our decisions, our free will, our choices don't occur in a vacuum. We're not emotionless robots without cares, concerns, and relationships, and neither is Clark. His hesitation and ability to be halted came from how his parents raised him, his imperfect knowledge in the moment, his desire to honor his father's wishes, his acknowledgement of his father's fears, and his concern about the witnesses and the possible impact of revealing himself. Basically, a tangle of human character and concerns, which is much more like the tough decisions that we, the audience, experience in real life. To me, that's a much more significant lesson. Even where we have the power to intervene or to act, our psychology and our circumstances can be no less real barriers than impossibility. Rarely do the laws of physics stop you from being charitable, self-disciplined, forgiving, or good. But we nonetheless can effectively find those things to be seemingly impossible at times. Man of Steel acknowledges the emotional depth and the reality of willpower, connections, society, and fear. <laughs> Um, like I said, my notes are a bit of a mess and I'm not sure where this goes, but as a quick aside, before we continue on with the boundaries of free will beyond physics and impossibility, I do have a small note here. Imagine if the heart attack in Superman the movie was subjected to the same kinds of criticisms as the tornado scene in Man of Steel. For example, why didn't Clark use his x-ray vision and begin to forcibly pump Pa Kent's heart? Why didn't Clark cryogenically freeze Pa and then restore him later? Why didn't Clark turn back time and hook up Pa to life support? Or why didn't Clark use his heat vision to clean up Pa's arteries? Absurd, right? Yet the answers that come so quickly and intuitively in response to these are the same types of answers that you could apply to the tornado scene. You can't apply today's knowledge of medical interventions to a 17-year-old kid in the mid-60s. You don't place those kinds of unrealistic expectations on a 17-year-old, and you don't base criticism on powers that are never demonstrated or don't develop until later in Clark's life. And somehow all these reasons go out the window and don't get applied to the tornado scene in Man of Steel. And that's because humanity is not purely guided by reason or logic or robotic rationality. Our emotions, upbringing, relationships, morals, and more are a more salient barrier to action than impossibility. If you love and respect somebody, it can be difficult to help them if they refuse to accept assistance. It isn't that helping is impossible. It's because you respect their choices. Ironically, if you didn't care about them, you could impose assistance upon them against their will more easily. This is the kind of lesson that's extensible to America's relations to foreign sovereign states, to parents and their kids, to paternalistic government policies over its citizens, to business towards their employees, and more. It's the question of when can you impose your will upon others, if at all. Man of Steel sets up the explanation for a paternalistic Superman who primarily conducts business within U.S. borders. As much as he wishes to help others, he must be welcome to help, and he prioritizes his own homeland first. Maybe. Superman recognizes that having ties and bonds and relationships binds up his powers in ways that even physics can't, but he believes that those ties are worth having. At some point, Superman has to learn to balance his desire to help and to save against humanity's autonomy and the mistakes and the tragedies that will arise from that autonomy. 
ties with people will make those decisions harder and more painful. And he had to decide whether to reject humanity and avoid that pain or to keep an open heart, even if it meant the possibility of those painful choices. And out of that, you can understand why Clark declares his relationship to Kansas and his loyalty to America. He's saying that it's a tie that means something to him. It's a tie that can be used to hurt him or to control him, but it's nonetheless a tie that he acknowledges and values. The tornado scene teaches a ton more lessons, but I don't think we have the time to go through them all, so I'm just going to rattle off a few from my notes. You can probably figure out how Clark is learning these things from the situation yourself. So aside from the power of ties and relationships and willingly binding your own choices by embracing connection, Clark learns about conviction. Clark sees what a man of conviction, somebody who is convinced what they look like and is able to recognize it in others later. He learns about sacrifice of one's life and of your own will to another's out of trust. He learns about competing interests and how to wrestle with how to resolve them quickly, decisively, and without haunting regret. As we discussed in previous episodes, Clark doesn't really need this scene to teach him about humility, the frailty of humans, and chaos. All of his powers never seem to let him overcome his isolation, so he knew powerless and humility. His powers could bring him sensory overload, so he knew pain. The bus accident proved that death, danger, and mayhem could strike at any moment without reason or regard for the innocent, so he knew how frail life could be. However, the tornado scene reinforced all these lessons and one more, which in my mind, far and away, makes it more powerful than the heart attack. No matter how conflicted Clark feels about Jonathan's choices, beliefs, and fears, and his own part in it, the one thing Clark would know beyond a shadow of a doubt was that his father Jonathan loved him enough to give his life for Clark. And when you know in your heart of hearts that your parent loves you, that seals up a certain confident security in a person that makes it easier for them to trust and to help others, no matter what injuries, rejections, or failures that you might experience along the way. Jonathan planted a seed of truth that meant no matter how inclined Clark might be to torment himself or to be plagued with false guilt or self-doubt, he'd always remember that somebody he trusted and cherished thought that he was worthy of love, and that to let all that torment creep in would dishonor Jonathan. The structure of the story lets us know that Clark didn't do that. The story was very deliberately non-linear, so the question is why? Why didn't the filmmakers present this to us in a linear fashion? Well, consider the information that we have going into it, which we wouldn't have had if the story was told linearly. We know that Clark learns to use his powers and to use them heroically. We know that Clark is still preserving his secret, that he's finally obtained his answers, and that he's met somebody that he feels that he can trust. We also know that Jonathan has passed based on the date on the gravestone. These things are meant to blunt the tragedy of Jonathan's death, to show the light at the end, so that we know that Clark isn't swallowed up by this. He doesn't get consumed by guilt, he doesn't reject humanity, he doesn't stop saving people or stop searching for his answers. Instead, through the process of wrestling with Jonathan's death, he arrives at his philosophy of action and anonymity. However, perhaps these non-linear prompts did their job too well. If the audience member is unsympathetic and unable to separate their knowledge from Clark's at the time, this structure can render them completely unforgiving. The critic will be prone to imputing Clark's present powers onto his past self, negating those past fears of rejection with his current acceptance, and impose 
imposing certain doom upon characters that weren't expecting it. The items meant to provide a beacon of hope and light through a dark time get taken for granted and assumed as givens by less empathetic and thoughtless critics. Of course, there are many other criticisms about the creative choices, such as the focus on tragedy and difficulties, the assumption that Clark has a guilt complex, opposition to Clark having any hesitation towards being a hero at all, and so on. Well, going through every possible permutation of what if can quickly spin out of control, so a better approach might be to look at some of the overall goals of the film, how this scene fits in, and with that side presented, you can decide for yourself how it fares against the alternatives. When we're talking about the narrative goals of a film, its point, its purpose, message, moral, or meaning, generally we're talking about themes. It's the central idea of a work, which is meant to apply beyond the work itself, an abstract idea that is proposed as applying to everyone, not just the characters or the situation in the story. Often, theme and subject are confused. I'm guilty of this myself. In episode 29, I said the first act's theme was identity. But identity is just a subject. A theme is a proposition or an opinion about the subject. So, for example, I might say that the theme for the first act is that there is no peace or purpose without identity. Again, it's important to stress that themes are subjective, debatable opinions that come from interpretation. Even if the creator has some intentional themes baked in, as long as you can support your opinion with evidence, you can own or adopt themes never intended by the creator. We imbue works with special meaning beyond creator intent all the time. When your sweetheart smiles and says, they're playing our song. That song wasn't created specifically for you and yours, but nonetheless holds a special personal meaning. Art isn't published or released in a vacuum. It's meant to interact with the audience. That's why many creators don't explain their works, as much as that can sometimes be frustrating, because it tends to stop what is meant to be an ongoing conversation. Creators often end up with the last word, but even then, there's a philosophical debate about whether that should be the case. One clear example is with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg continuing to alter or manipulate their films after initial release. That debate isn't this show, and it's an area where reasonable minds differ. But my general position, which changes on a case-to-case basis, is that creator intent is strongly persuasive, but not dispositively canonical. Applied, that would mean that Han was the only one to shoot, but that George really thinks that Greedo shot first. I view it similar to legislative intent for statutory interpretation. It's certainly a very persuasive factor, but I'm going to weigh the end product more than something that wasn't enacted. Why? Because it takes more than intention to enact legislation, just like it takes more than intention to get into a film. Something that didn't make it past the editors, the runtime, the shooting script, the visual effects, and so on, there's arguably a good reason why it was excluded, and probably on a slightly lower tier of canon. Similarly, if a legislature has a particular goal in mind, actual enactment may require compromise, contention, and so on, which renders the final product different, and perhaps a better reflection of our collective beliefs. Maybe. There's a strong argument that cuts in the other direction, but the point is that themes are an act of interpretation, which don't belong exclusively to the creator. What you take away is valid and important, whether or not they were intended, confirmed, or even refuted. 
Finding themes helps bring a work together and to give it salience beyond just the story. Generally, a theme repeats itself throughout the work and it's reinforced by key scenes or the main character's arc. You can find explicit statements of the theme by the author often at the beginning or the end of the work, hinted at in the title of the piece, or as part of the central conflict. You are asking, what is the work trying to say and how does it speak to me? Really, the only rule is that you can provide some supporting evidence for your theme. If you can't, or the film seems to directly contradict your proposed theme, you probably have to narrow or rethink your proposal. With this broad an interpretation on theme being so subjective, it's unsurprising to find many different themes in Man of Steel. It's a little akin to the complexity of describing a strawberry compared to a piece of bubblegum. I'm just going to quickly list off seven supportable themes, but then we're really going to focus on three three themes which I think are especially compelling. Many of these themes could overlap or be interpreted differently. Again, the significance is up to you and how you support it. So theme one, adaptation to change is necessary. The support for this? Well, on Krypton, the Council and Zod could not adapt. Jonathan adapted too slowly, yet our heroes did adapt and prevailed. Theme two, forgiveness and cooperation are powerful. So Clark forgives Pete, Jonathan forgives Clark, Superman forgives humanity, Hardy forgives Superman, and Superman cooperates with Lois and humanity to defeat Zod, who can't and doesn't forgive. Theme 3, reality is nuanced and complex. Dilemmas will arise, which set principles into conflict. So we see this again and again on Krypton, law-breaking versus preservation, abandoning your child versus dooming your species. We have the gray and the maybe of the bus rescue and the tornado. Lois has to weigh protection against publication. And in the end, between saving versus is stopping. Okay, I think you get the idea. You can probably reconstruct the support for most of these themes based on your own familiarity with the film. So let me just rattle off the last few proposed themes. Theme four, the crucible of suffering creates strength. Theme five, inaction arises more from choice than impossibility. Theme six, hope requires perseverance, tenacity, and faith. Theme seven, power doesn't solve dilemmas. And even as I'm listing these, I can imagine some more variations like suffering is universal, whether powerful or righteous, or there's no such thing as a perfect singular ideal. However, I'd need to think about those more to see if they pan out. I have already thought about three particular themes for some time now, and I think they're pretty robust. They are, first, the pain of birth is worth the potential. Second, organic is better than engineered. And third, the philosophy of Kintsugi, acknowledging our brokenness and restoration, makes us better. Each provides a different lens and focus for the film as a whole, and the tornado scene fits into each theme a different way. Starting with the pain of birth is worth the potential. It's apparent that birth is a significant subject for Man of Steel since the film opens with it. In the show notes, I'll put a link to a thesis on Man of Steel, which is a video essay that we've discussed in the past and which makes a persuasive argument about the symbolism of birth throughout the film, far better than I could ever cover here. I highly recommend viewing it for this theme and some religious parallels. As always, the creative is more highly subjective, so you don't have to agree with everything, but it is well composed and it provides many original insights worth considering. However, it isn't just enough to say birth or sacrifice. As we discussed earlier, that's a one-word subject. To find the theme, what is the film trying to say about birth? 
And I would hazard the idea that it's something like genuine birth involves pain and that it's worth going through. That idea of cost or justification helps bring together the aspects of suffering and sacrifice under the umbrella of travails or the labor pains of birth. It also encompasses resurrection and Christ themes or symbolism because what is resurrection but death and rebirth? Death is a necessary condition and cost or labor preceding the subsequent new life. We can see the theme repeated throughout the film as an indictment of Krypton. Having divorced themselves from the pain of natural birth, the result was a stagnant culture stuck rigidly in its ways, one where the avoidance of labor pain gave rise to a society without choice, chance, free will, or surprise. The film deliberately opens with Lara giving birth, in labor and screaming, but giving birth to a child with unlimited potential. The theme is in the destruction of Krypton, which has to die so that Superman can be born. Clark has to undergo suffering as a child to give birth to a compassionate and empathetic man of power and humility. In the tornado scene, Clark has to experience the pain of inaction and indecision to give birth to a responsive and decisive Superman. It arises again as an indictment of Krypton when Zod is unwilling to adapt or accept the painful labor of having new Kryptonians born on Earth undergo the same painful adaptation process that Kal-El had to. And in doing so, he rejects the birth of a new people who could cohabit Earth with humanity. And arguably in the finale where Clark has to endure the pain of taking a life in order to give birth to his code. Again, I think a thesis on Man of Steel covers this in a more compelling manner, so I'd check that out. And a lot of this bleeds into our other themes, so let's move on to the second theme. Organic is better than engineered. This theme also ties back to Krypton explicitly in the film's preference for the natural born over engineered children. But it's also perhaps the most metatextual of the three themes as commentary about the film's choices. In the past on the podcast, I've discussed a variation of this saying the old and codified is replaced by the new and principled. Or you could say natural versus artificial. I think that was the approach and the message both in story and out. In terms of creative intentions, rather than following a strict list of codified, preordained, and pre-programmed artificial expectations arising from tradition and attempting to engineer a Superman to suit those parameters, they instead dug deep into the canon, the mythos, and tradition to distill a few essential principles and then, with almost manic obsession, allowed those principles to naturally and organically interact, to give rise to the story that we got. In other words, instead of engineering a secret origin because that's the way it's always been, they simply let what would naturally happen become the story, which is why Lois is in on it from the beginning. Instead of mechanically and artificially glossing over Superman's extraterrestrial origins because that's what the old traditions codified, they accepted the principle that Superman was an alien and let that organically impact the story. Instead of parents who were artificially engineered to be unrealistically optimistic, we were given parents who acted like natural, real parents would, given their situation. The decision to shrink the time frame, focus, and perspective of the story was to avoid the wide-sweeping implications that would organically arise from all these events. However, that outcropping is something that will naturally give birth to the story, conflict, and themes of Batman v Superman. Note that the organic, principled, realistic approaches means that there is ambiguity rather than certainty or absolutes. There is complexity nuance, contradiction, and tension between ideas. Jorel wanted to uphold the council 
people, but he broke the law. Zod and Jor-El were friends, but opposed one another. Feora cries and mourns for Krypton, and Zod shows compassion by putting a hand on her shoulder to comfort her. But on Earth, they are remorseless and genocidal. In an organic story, they do not have to be one-dimensional and have only purely evil traits. Duty is exhibited by both Zod and Hardy. Soldiers stand by and do nothing when Chrissy is harassed and, and Clark is bullied, but then soldiers give their lives in Smallville and in Metropolis. Man of Steel didn't engineer good or evil as the exclusive domain of any one type of person or profession. There was always another facet. With journalists, you have Glenn Woodburn and Lois Lane. With generals, you have Zod and Swanwick. With loyal soldiers, you have Feora and Hardy. With scientists, you have Jack Zur and Emil Hamilton. With bullies, you have Kenny Braverman and Pete Ross. With mothers, you have Mrs. Ross and Martha Kent. With truckers, you have Ludlow on one side, but then the ones that give Clark a lift on the other. With the Kryptonians, you have the Council, and then you have Jor-El and Lara. And then with aliens, you have the Phantom Zone criminals, and you have Superman. This duality or spectrum shows that your choices and your free will matter rather than simply what society intended. And this is the thematic echo of Jor-El's quest for free will and Jonathan and Martha raising Clark to choose. The organic ideal is also found throughout the design language of Krypton, which is described as a world without straight lines, plastic, or metal, where everything is meant to seem as if it were grown. It shows that Krypton's legacy and heritage was the organic, which meant exploration, free will, and adventure, all of which was abandoned when artificial population control was established. It's true, you give up a certain amount of clarity and precision going organic, perhaps one of the reasons why Man of Steel is so divisive. But there is a qualitative difference between a piece of strawberry-flavored bubblegum and an actually freshly picked ripe strawberry fruit. With bubblegum, you know what you're going to get every time the flavor is strong, clear, and one-dimensional, easily repeatable quickly forgotten, wadded up and discarded. Yet with the strawberry, you have to deal with grit and stem, carefully harvesting and washing. But when it's ripe and it's handled with care, it is fragrant, textured, juicy, sweet yet refreshing, complex, and a lifelong memory. Assuming that it's even to your taste to begin with. Taste is subjective, but the film takes the position that the organic has the potential for greatness and surprise that the predictable bubblegum will never achieve. So I think we have to change metaphors. We have to go from what is essentially an industrial model of education, a manufacturing model, which is based on linearity and conformity and batching people. We have to move to a model that is based more on principles of agriculture. We have to recognize that human flourishing is not a mechanical process, it's an organic process. And you cannot predict the outcome of human development. All you can do is, like a farmer, is create the conditions under which they will begin to flourish. Applied to the tornado scene, no person would plan for or engineer their life to include that situation. Instead, acts of God, forces of nature, the unpredictable, unfair, and chaotic are a part of the natural organic life. Life is bitter in that way, but also unexpectedly rich, full of potential, promise, and joy in that way too. Life doesn't follow the formula of rom-coms or action flicks, but it is so much more meaningful in its nuance. 
Much of the unconscious angst about the tornado scene arises from the unfulfilled expectations of that artificial formula. Danger arises, the visual effects kick in, and people expected the formula. That artificial junk food hit of sweet or salty or fat, where the character becomes impossibly competent, saves the day, and no one suffers. Or, even if there is some suffering, it must be mitigated in some cliched, engineered, expected way, like the glorification of Jonathan's death saving a child or the clarity and finality of an unavoidable heart attack. Instead, the audience was left with something messy, ambiguous, and imperfect, which defied many expectations and caused many to react adversely. Yet what it lacked in immediate satisfaction or appreciation, it more than made up for in creating those same lingering questions in the audience, which Clark would continually wrestle with as he developed his character and his superhero philosophy. If you, the audience member, are still mulling over the choices, the alternatives, the justifications, and so on, long after watching a four-minute sequence. How much more would Clark consider this life-changing moment? So it acted as an organic seed for character development, rather than simply forcing it upon him as programming, essentially rewriting his personality and humanity in a cave. As we explored extensively last episode, the psychology and behavior of the characters in that scene were incredibly naturalistic, plausible, and reasonably flawed. They behaved like people behave, rather than how puppets in a preordained plot following a formula would. Remember, this is all still the first act, and they're setting the stage for the rules of this world and the framework of the story. On Krypton, Jor-El was able to act like an action hero, and then Clark followed in his stead in the oil rig scene. However, the tornado scene resets our expectations so that we understand things aren't always going to go the hero's way, that there will be real and tragic and messy consequences that don't fit neatly into the action film formula. And that sets up the stakes for the following acts so that any audience apathy to death is broken. Part of the strong reaction to death in Man of Steel is because it successfully conveys its weight and its significance. They find themselves upset because they feel the deaths in a way that we don't feel in a natural disaster film or in a kaiju movie where we're completely callous to the calamity and the casualties. Being upset feeling those emotions isn't the mark of a bad film, it means that it reached you with the intended effect. If the tornado scene didn't approach human behavior and death naturally, there would have been no stakes, no sense of jeopardy, and no tension to the rest of the film. You could legitimately just assume Superman's complete and uncompromised victory without watching a second more. The filmmakers so desired natural performances that they even obtained jet engines to simulate the tornado-like winds for the actors. So, this this is the scene with the giant tornado. Kevin Costner notices that there's a serious storm brewing and these blowers are going off, the fans, there's a jet engine blowing us. We're all in it together. We're all thrown into this moment of absolute horror together, screaming and shrieking. And then there's a cut and the wind stops and everybody, you know, goes and gets their snack. Or, and, you know, my daughter was visiting that day and I was like, hi, honey. It's just so surreal. We kind of went a little bit crazy on that. I had a friend who had some jet engines, and I asked him if we could turn them into wind machines. So we had two jet engines that we mounted on the back of car towing trucks. They were T-33s, which is old generation, but they're a safe jet because all the intake is radial. It was fun. It was a lot of the background stuff that we got to do. All right. For the final theme that I want to propose, you might need a little background on a particular Japanese art form with a deep philosophical motive and metaphorical application. First an introduction, and then I'll let Evan Pushak of the web 
series The Nerd Writer explain. Break a favorite bowl and you throw it out, right? Not in Japan, where the traditional habit of muktainai refuses to waste anything. The old Japanese went even further, mending crockery in ways that actually make it more valuable and beautiful. This method for repairing ceramics is called kintsugi, and it's been used for over 400 years. Broken pieces are bonded and the line of the repair is decorated with gold. Let's look at the processes involved in kintsugi. First, the edges of the broken fragments are coated with a glue made from lacquer resin. The fragments are firmly bonded back into place. Then the joints are rubbed with an abrasive such as charcoal until the surface is perfectly smooth again. After drying, more lacquer is applied and again rubbed smooth. This process is repeated many times before lacquer mixed with gold dust adds the final finish. Kintsugi is far more than just an appealing technique for repairing broken or chipped crockery. Using gold to emphasize the line of the repair became a way of adding beauty to the original. A method for mending breakages became an artistic technique in its own right. Taking something as ordinary as mending cracked pottery and developing it into a sophisticated way of expressing a fresh kind of beauty. Kintsugi is a very Japanese art form. This idea, the idea of embracing our wounds, our brokenness, is manifested quite poetically in the Japanese mending practice of kintsugi, literally meaning golden joinery. Kintsugi is the art of fixing broken pottery with lacquer resin dusted or mixed with powdered gold. The art of kintsugi became famous for turning broken objects into pieces more beautiful than the original product. The philosophy here follows from a broader Japanese aesthetic called wabi-sabi that finds beauty not in traditional Western ideals of symmetry or geometry, but in Buddhist concepts of impermanence and imperfection. The fractures on a ceramic bowl don't represent the end of that object's life, but rather an essential moment in its history. The flaws of its shape aren't hidden from inspection, but emblazoned with golden significance. Maybe Hemingway had Kintsugi on his mind when he wrote that famous line from A Farewell to Arms. The world breaks everyone, and afterward, many are strong in the broken places. The amazing art of Kintsugi fading art like so many handcrafts symbolizes the truth that repair requires transformation that the pristine is less beautiful than the broken and that the shape of us is impossible to see until it's fractured until a wound like a crack runs its length as described in the clips, the philosophical underpinnings of Kintsugi is that imperfection, brokenness, repair and restoration are the story of life. I find the Kintsugi theme compelling because it allows us to tie together our two previous themes of birth and the organic, with a redemptive theme that I think will carry through and beyond on Krypton, birth had been antiseptic, divorced from people, industrial, clean, silent, robotic, and painless. Yet in the opening frames of this film, we're shown a birth that is personal, painful, screaming, crying, noisy, and messy. Tears, sweat, blood, and mucus, it's human, real, and organic. The Genesis Chamber separates birth from its pain, but also its potential. A pristine and alabaster piece of ceramic is exactly what you'd expect. It will never evolve or change. It is identical to every other piece in its set and a cookie-cutter replication. Yet in brokenness, it gains something, a unique story, a tale tied to that moment in time and its circumstance. That story is outside the pottery, but it's also told in the cracks, which are unique, 
organic and beautiful. They take on the nature of veins, lightning, webs, or forking rivers. They are unpredictable, yet follow recognizable overall patterns. They are neither complete chaos nor strictly ordered. They are like life. And suddenly this cookie-cutter template has its own unique life and identity, and the art of kintsugi sees fit to acknowledge and remember that instead of ignoring and hiding it. The purpose doesn't change, and it is, in fact, improved. The cup, which was aesthetically pleasing and for tea after restoration is still used for tea, is more beautiful, and is, in fact, literally stronger. After being broken, you are left with the pieces that didn't break, the pieces which are sturdier and more unbreakable than the whole. I'm sure you've experienced that if you've ever tried to break something brittle, it becomes more difficult the smaller the pieces are. Those surviving pieces are brought together by lacquer, which is stronger and tougher than the original pottery. The end result is something stronger, more unique, more distinct, and as functional as the original. And in acknowledgement of all that, the joinery is highlighted with gold, something which highlights the past but which does not change the function of the object. The object was not created by or for its brokenness, but the brokenness enhances the story. You can use Superman and Batman to tell two very different and equally valid stories of brokenness. Imagine Batman as broken pottery that gives up being pottery, who uses the sharp edge created by the break to transform himself into a knife or a spear meant to cut and break others. Batman is defined by, gains utility from, and is transformed into something totally different by his break. In that sense, Batman does not ever want to be restored because healing his break would cost him the edge of his knife or the point of his spear. Superman, however, follows the philosophy of Kintsugi. Imagine Superman as pottery holding life-sustaining water and after being broken and restored, doing the same but only better. Whether he was raised on Krypton, whether he never learned that he was an alien, whether Jonathan never died, whether he never had to stop Zod, Superman still would have been inclined to be an essentially good person. Each break is followed by a restoration which only enhances his ability to be who he already was, to be a superior version of himself. His break with Krypton meant being restored to Earth where he gained the powers of Superman and parents willing to nurture that potential. His break in learning his origins meant that he could be restored by Jor-El to learn his identity and to gain with it confidence, security, purpose, and flight. His break with Jonathan meant being restored over 16 years of soul-searching where he resolved to act and learned how to use his powers to help. His break with Zod meant being restored as fully adopting humanity and developing his resolve to do everything in his power to avoid ever needing to use lethal force again. In every case, he is an amplified, superior version of himself after the break, but is not consumed by or obsessed with the break after being restored. Superman endorses brokenness to be restored to something better. Batman endorses brokenness to be transformed into something different. Remembering brokenness and restoration is not purely Eastern philosophy or Zen Buddhism. The purpose of the Passover and the communion is to create ceremonial remembrances about our brokenness and the means of our restoration, to highlight it instead of hiding it. We don't live our lives to escape the bondage or slavery of death, but we have ceremonies to remind us that we have been freed and 
and restored and to live our lives for their intended purpose, not as if we were still broken. Like the gold highlighting the seams of the repair, remembering is important. In the Christian narrative, although resurrected and regenerated, Christ retained the wounds in his hands, his feet, and his side to remember and highlight the means by which restoration was accomplished. Adopting the symbol of the cross serves a similar function. This idea crosses, no pun intended, religions and cultures because we all know brokenness and restoration. Unfortunately, there is some rejection of that because some believe that Superman should never break, that he is meant to be perfect, pristine, without tragedy, and unbreakable. Well, as long as we are raising the Christian account, a common trivia question asks, what is the shortest verse in the English Bible? The answer, Jesus wept, John 11, 35. The larger context of this line is that this act of humanity precedes his most divine miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is out of town when he learns that his close friend Lazarus is sick. People who know that Jesus can heal beg him to rush over and heal Lazarus before he dies. But Jesus stays where he is for two more days and then gets the news that Lazarus is dead, something that Jesus might have been able to prevent. The sisters of Lazarus are racked with grief and crying, which is when we get our trivia answer, Jesus wept. So here, a being who is perceived as Almighty God incarnate, morally perfect, and sinless according to the tenets of his followers, is portrayed by his followers as human, moved to tears, acquainted with grief, unashamed of identifying with the sorrow of others, and subject to heartbreak because he loves us others. Now I'm going to skip the whole parallels between the expectations of others and a potentially preventable death and just point out that a 2,000-year-old religion has no problem accepting a God-man who can be broken yet perfect with full sincerity and devotion. Isn't it just a little conceited to consider a corporate-owned and commercially-driven comic book character, not even a century old, unacceptable unless he's absolutely unbreakable? When your character standards exceed those of an actual religion's deity, you might just have gone a little too far in your requirements. We really don't have time for the tangent that is the science of steel, but perhaps it's a little ironic that steel gets some of its strength from its impurities. And those who picture Superman as utterly devoid of tragedy or suffering forget that fire, furnace, anvil, and hammer is what makes steel what it is, and that drawing and stretching steel can actually give it more strength. It takes more than 11,000 pounds of force to pull one steel rod through the tiny opening in the dies. But as the wire is drawn out, something incredible happens. Unlike materials such as aluminum and plastic, which become weaker as they are stretched in, steel responds to the stress in the opposite way. When you draw it and you put preferential stresses in it, that's when you will actually increase the strength and actually improve its ductility and its fatigue resistance. I have no doubts that a kid who has lived a trouble-free, idyllic childhood, who was popular in school, a star football player, and raised by two loving parents who are still living, can have a spirit of volunteerism and be a hero at heart. However, if you asked me if that kid is stronger than one that had to deal with bullies, isolation, frustration, and the tragic death of a parent who, after all that, still has the same spirit of volunteerism and the heart of a hero, no question in my mind that the latter is strong 
stronger and has overcome more. I believe their intentions could be the same, but I would trust the latter to have more compassion for the suffering of others, to identify better with their pain, and to have the heart to succeed in the face of trial more reliably than the first, because he's already been through the fire and done it. It's that sense of identification that kept the tornado scene in the film even after Oklahoma was struck by a series of top-of-the-scale EF5 tornadoes which killed dozens. The filmmakers understood their scene as identifying with the tragedy. In an interview, Snyder said, He's changed by those events. If anything, we feel like our Superman has a connection not to make light of to the kind of grief that happens during these kinds of natural disasters. Also, in a sad way, even Superman can't change that. If you prefer the perfect and unbreakable Superman, that's your prerogative. But I find this Kintsugi version far more compelling. There is something universally appealing about redemption, a second chance, a comeback, and Man of Steel taps into that. It's part of the reason the death of Superman and his subsequent return is such a part of the zeitgeist. It's part of the reason that post-crisis Superman is so compelling and adored, because of its clean break with and the clear dividing line with the Silver Age. Rarely do we equivocate the actions of Superman across the ages because DC allowed for breaks in continuity bounded by clear golden lines, compared to Marvel's more amorphous, never-ending continuity. It's part of the reason Superman was such an enormous success in the first place. For any other character, we know that character flaws are essential and that human imperfection makes for a superior story and character. We know that the failings, psychosis, and guilt of Peter Parker and Bruce Wayne make them compelling. For Superman, however, the angst was not in the character, but in the climate. Superman was the brainchild of young men who had been picked on and bullied in school, who were the sons of immigrants and an ethnic minority, one who struggled with the death of his father during an unsolved violent crime, both during the Great Depression and with the anxiety of global war looming over the nation. More on that later. Yet for Batman and Spider-Man, before we knew anything about their backstories or alter egos, conceptually, they contained a psychological masterstroke by forcing us to resolve our disgust and our revulsion of creepy crawly spiders or our fear of screeching bats swarming in the night with heroes to be admired. This creates cognitive dissonance, which is the tension when our minds are holding two contradictions contradictory or opposing ideas. Here, the disgust or fear for the animal namesake contradicts the admiration for the hero. Then, when we decide on a decision, the need for our minds to resolve this contradiction create a stronger bias in favor of that direction than if there had been no contradiction at all. So if you decide to like Spider-Man, subconsciously you're telling yourself that you must really like Spider-Man to enjoy him despite hating spiders. This creates a loyalty to Spider-Man beyond just an ordinary ordinary hero without a disgusting element, or so the psychological theory suggests. This is the psychological principle behind hazing, the Ben Franklin effect, or the Aesop's fable, The Fox and the Grapes. I'll put a link in the show notes. What you might not know, however, is that in 1938, an American reading a story about an alien immigrant arriving and being demonstrably better at everything than you were possessed the same cognitive dissonant property inherent in a bat or a spider hero. During the 19 
1930s, the tragic losses of World War I and the frustrations of the Great Depression pushed the American public towards isolationism and a strong anti-immigration sentiment. The Immigration Quota Act of 1921 and the National Origins Act of 1924 severely limited immigration. Ellis Island began to decay from neglect and abandonment, and at the height of the Great Depression, for the first time in U.S. history, more immigrants were leaving the country than arriving. In a national poll conducted in 1944 on who should be permitted to immigrate to the United States, Jews ranked below the Chinese and Mexicans, and the only nationalities below are wartime enemies, the Germans, followed by the Japanese. As Jewish young men, Siegel and Schuster were under no illusions about what it meant to make their character an immigrant in 1938. All of which is to say, to an American audience at the time, an immigrant could summon as negative feelings as a flying rodent or an arachnid. Yet once you got over the fact that he was an alien and you accepted Superman, you really liked him. Cracked recently released a video proposing some other aspects that Superman's alien nature enhanced. And if we liked ourselves, we'd tell stories where a human being gains absolute power and remains decent. But since we hate ourselves, we say a powerful good person is less believable than a flying bodybuilder. Anytime a hero is invincible and not a dick about it, we insist they're not of this earth. They must be from Mars or a mythological figure, or personified Capri Sun. That's why we turned an otherwise human hero into an alien when we could have just written him as a Kansan. That's not an accident. Our culture had tons of opportunities to make the comic book Ur-Superhero one of us. Everybody from Shazam to Hugo Danner to John Carter of Mars was a kind superhuman who influenced Superman, which is to say they basically were Superman before him. But none of those humans ever took off Rimshot, which means the story that truly speaks to us is a story affirming that people given power are and we've stuck to that story for 77 years and counting. Its bummer quality isn't born from that recent post 9-11 funk that gave Batman respiratory problems. Do I look like a cop? Even beyond being an immigrant and an alien, Superman was edgy and confrontational. He tackled the social injustices of the time in a way that might make a publisher squirm with discomfort today. That was what initially enthralled and entranced the public. However, Superman became a victim of his own success. The more mainstream Superman Superman became, the more he stood for establishment and the safer he became. In order to survive through Wortham's inquisition of the comics industry, Superman's edges were sanded away and all but forgotten. His adventures were total flights of fancy, without grounding, fantastical and cosmic, and generally devoid of substantial social commentary and completely uncontroversial. Essentially, like the Kryptonians in Man of Steel, Superman abandoned his messy organic birth, born of teenage angst, anger at injustice, frustration at the Great Depression, immigrant repression, and the specter of global warfare. And he traded it for something clean and contained, antiseptic and artificial, safe and inhuman. At some point, this became the expectation and the norm, such that Superman's confrontational origins were forgotten. And correspondingly, Superman's popularity and relevance began to plummet. DC recognized the need to restore groundedness to the character and began to pursue a stronger sense of continuity, psychological depth and deepened his humanity, but in the process Superman's alien nature was heavily de-emphasized and was so completely ignored that people seemed to legitimately forget that he was alien.
doing it. We haven't really had a Superman origin film since 1978. And uh, I remember talking to my kids who are, you know, teenagers and saying, um, so anyway, Superman's from Krypton. And they're like, what? He's from where? (laughs) And I said, okay, we clearly need to go back to the beginning again because they have no idea what the heck was going on. So we were, uh, that was one of the things that inspired me because I really just wanted everyone to understand that he's an alien, that he comes from another world, that there's a lot to to him that you didn't understand. When traveling on inertia for so long, it made sense to go back and try to find the cracks in the Superman mythos, the things that had been glossed over and taken for granted, which could now be highlighted with gold. So if Kintsugi, restoration and repair of one's original function is the thematic lens, what was Superman's original function? What made him unique from all the other entertaining heroes at the time? And perhaps it's Superman's ability to act as a metaphor for America, to test and challenge our beliefs about immigration, social justice, and the scope of American power. When Superman first took off, he fought corrupt government officials, greedy businessmen, and was involved overseas long before America got over its isolationism. So America struggled with isolationism, anti-immigrant attitudes, and prejudice towards minorities. The pain and the death of World War II was, of course, terrible, but it broke America out of its detachment from global concerns. It exposed an entire generation to foreign cultures, cuisine, and companions. Consider the 1945 War Bride Act. The common enemy caused some Americans to put aside their differences of color, creed, and class, which would precipitate into the civil rights and feminist movements. Conflict sometimes allows America to address controversy and grow during the restoration. Consider another great conflict in our subsequent growth. Innovation is hard because it means doing something that people don't find very easy for the most part. It means challenging what we take for granted, things that we think are obvious. Um, The great problem for reform or transformation is the tyranny of common sense. Things that people think, well, they can't be done any other way because that's the way it's done. I came across a great quote recently from Abraham Lincoln. He said this, the dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. The occasion is piled high with difficulty, and we must rise with the occasion. I love that. Not rise to it, rise with it. As our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country. I love that word, disenthrall. You know what he means? That there are ideas that all of us are enthralled to, which we simply take for granted as the natural order of things, the way things are. And many of our ideas have been formed not to meet the circumstance of this century, but to cope with the circumstances of previous centuries. But our minds are still hypnotized by them. And we have to disenthrall ourselves of some of them. Now, doing this is easier said than done. It's very hard to know, by the way, what it is you take for granted. And the reason is that you take it for granted. Yet, many do not want Man of Steel to challenge them or to raise controversies, but to coddle them with nostalgia, tradition, and simply keep things going as they had gone, to stay safe. Is it really surprising that the most powerful man in the world should be a figure of controversy? The filmmakers no longer wanted to take Superman for granted. In breaking down his elements and reviewing his past, they found controversy to be one of his organic birthrights, which had been given up in order to make him bland, uncontroversial, and safe for mass consumption. The film was at its tornado scene moment of decision, to choose to repeat the past, to continue with safety, and to honor the 
loyal fans at the time, ultimately at their own expense and at the cost of the franchise. Or to do the risky thing, even if there would be division and persecution, controversy and discord, bigotry and prejudice. The filmmakers chose the latter, and they presented a film that challenges sound bites and simplicity and absolutes for overly complex realism, nuance, and shades of gray. The film challenges the audience on their ideas about the environment, eugenics, parenting, destiny, religion, rescue, privacy, the press, whistleblowing, military force, lethal force, surrender, collateral, casualties, and more. It is incredibly in-your-face with many things that you don't necessarily need to agree with, but you are caused to at least consider your own position on because of this film. Are we being good stewards of the planet? Have we overcome our prejudices? How would we treat somebody from the stars? When is it okay to kill? How much collateral is too much? Do we judge others fairly? What does it take to fall in love or to trust? And so on. I get that not everybody wants a Superman movie that makes people ask questions. But if you consider Superman's roots, it's definitely an organic part of his heritage that the filmmakers tried to capture and represent to a new modern audience. Myth is one of the ways we process the questions in life. Superman challenged social justice during the Depression, gained powers from radiation in response to the atomic age, and had cosmic space adventures as we embarked on a new frontier. Today, we live in uncertainty. We have doomsday clocks hanging over our heads from climate change or overpopulation. We worry about government overreach, and we worry that people are disenfranchised and don't want to volunteer. Many struggle to find their calling and work. Man of Steel touches on these, and emphasizing Superman's alien nature was the perfect lens for processing that. If you wanted and expected sameness, perfection, tradition, and safety, why in the world would you invite an alien immigrant into your life? The alien immigrant represents something new, different, foreign, and challenging. It's what he's supposed to do, and it's what the film does. And it's unsurprising that the people who enjoy the film tend to be the ones open to new and different takes, to be the ones who might actually embrace a Superman if he were to arrive on Earth, rather than to reject him unless he comes prepackaged exactly the way they expected. As if he were immigrating from Canada, rather than crossing light years across galaxies from the doomed planet of Krypton. Or not. <laughs> Ask me again in a few weeks or months, and my ideas on this may have completely changed. This is all remarkably subjective and messy and touchy-feely stuff that isn't typically my realm of analysis. I think we've covered the scope of the whole Superman mythos under this theme, but I just want to refocus back on the film with two final thoughts about why this Kintsugi theme is so appealing. There is a beautiful poetic symmetry or balance to the tornado scene and how it is being used with respect to Lois. Clark highlights a moment of brokenness for Lois by telling a story of losing somebody he loved because the world couldn't be trusted. The act itself, however, is a moment of restoration as he is exhibiting the utmost trust and transparency and he gains somebody to love through it. The break is simultaneously highlighted and healed. The restoration is acknowledged and not hidden in keeping with Kintsugi. Finally, 
consider this philosophy with respect to the Black Zero event and Batman v Superman. From what we've seen and we know about Batman v Superman, it very much intends to highlight and to heal the fractures created by the Black Zero event. There is no intention of glossing over or pretending that it never happened. Instead, this is the very thing that makes Batman v Superman organic, natural, logical, and unique from the typical disconnected franchise film sequel with its own story that generally only plays lip service to the past. If everything comes together as it should, the entire cinematic universe will be stronger, more beautiful, and more profound for it. It's valuable to try to find and explore themes, to allow yourself to take lessons away from art, be it a restoration of pottery, mythology, or film, because it will increase your appreciation, broaden your thinking, and potentially provide insight applicable to your own life. Feel free to share any themes or lessons you've found in Man of Steel in the comments or by email. Okay, I think I've rambled on long enough. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son. Please welcome, in his very brave musical theatrical debut, <laughs> a filmmaking legend, Mr. Joss Whedon. on a cave it was a bison was a fave the other cave people would rave they didn't ask why why paint a bison if it's dead when did you choose the color red what was the process in your head he told their story what came before he didn't show we're not supposed to Homer's Odyssey was swell A bunch of guys that went through hell He told the tale but didn't tell the audience why He didn't say here's what it means And here's a few deleted scenes Charybdis tested well with teens He's not the story He's just a door we open if Our lives need lifting But now we pick To find the tick, tick, tick of a heart A heart broken It's broken by the endless loads Of making ofs and mobisodes The tie-ins, prequels, games and codes The audience buys The narrative dies stretched and torn Hey, spoiler warning We're gonna pick it apart, open it up to find the tick, tick, tick of a heart, a heart broken down. Do you really need to know? Sit back, relax, enjoy the show.
go oh, no no the crowd won't rest till he explains like zombies clawing for his brains or anything that infotains and that maintains my fame my fame my precious quasi fame <laughs> What am I doing? There's people watching. I, uh... I sang some things I didn't mean. <laughs> I think this commentary is keen. So let's return now to the scene. I'll tell the story. This song itself was hard to write. I cut the bridge to keep it tight. It's kind of slow and doesn't quite advance the story. It's really boring, that's all done. Get on the fun train. We're gonna pick, 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 pick it apart. Open it up to find the tick, tick, tick of a heart. We're gonna pick, we're gonna pick, pick, pick it apart. Pick up a stick and find the tick, tick, tick of a heart. A heart on sale now. Mr. Joss Whedon on vocals and piano, Matt Clark on guitar. You're the answer, son.